0: Sinclair, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you so much for having me.
2: Yeah, um, I hear that you've been a fan of ours for a little while. I have. I remember when Better Reading first sort of popped up on social media and yeah. started started following and it's been amazing to see how much you've grown. It's yeah, fantastic. Yeah,
0: this is the beginning of our fifth year, I think, it's
2: Wonderful. Um,
0: which has been fantastic. Yeah, and it's fantastic because there's an audience out there. There are readers who want to connect with writers and there are writers who want to connect with readers. It's Absolutely. as simple as that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Let me introduce Ali. She's an award-winning Australian writer. She's an adventurer at heart and has lived in Argentina, Peru, and Canada. She's climbed some of the world's highest mountains.
2: I mean, I have read a big article on Nepal on the weekend. Did you see that? Oh, yes. I've been following that one. Have you been up there? I've been to Nepal and I've been climbing in Nepal, but no, I haven't climbed Everest. You haven't climbed Everest. Okay. (laughs) it's probably not a good... Not well, a good idea. At not the moment. A, no, not a good idea.
0: Uh, she has cli- uh, uh, climbed lots of mountains, worked as a tour guide in South and Central America. You are such an adventurer because that wouldn't have been easy.
2: No, it wasn't. But I, I like a challenge. Yeah, yeah, you do. <laughs> um, she also hosts retreats
0: for writers and presents writing workshops around Australia, as well as working on international film projects. So you know, I'm gathering she doesn't get much sleep. <laughs> Ali's book, um, ex- well, books explore history, culture, love and grief and relationships between family and friends and lovers with some of her much-loved titles, including Lunar Tango, Parisian Dreams and Burning Fields. Ali's here today to talk to us about her latest book, The Cinema at Starlight Creek, a heart-stirring tale of love, loss and hope set against the backdrop of 1950s Hollywood and an Australian country town. Wow. There's a lot there. <laughs> there is. <laughs> okay, so I want to talk about this adventurous life. Tell me mm. where you grew up um, and how it is that all these travels brought you to writing.
2: I born and bred in Geelong. Yeah. And when I was about 20, I couldn't wait to leave. I wanted to go out and see the world. So I... Had you been a reader and writer at oh, school? Yes always, yes, always. Always. Yeah, I was, I was the kid who was walking to school with my head in a book mm-hmm. and, you know, someone had to pull me back from walking onto the road. Yeah, wow. <laughs> yeah, so, yes, yeah, stories have played a really big part in my life. Yeah, And so at 20? 20, I decided that I really need to go and explore the world. Yeah. Australians tend to do that at that age. We do indeed. It's almost a rite of passage. So I um, decided that I really wanted to go and visit countries that were a little bit off the beaten track. So I went to India, I went to Nepal, and that's where I fell in love with mountain climbing. Mm -hmm. I did my first climbing expedition there. And then I started working in the Australian travel industry for a couple of big trekking companies. But of course, you know, sitting in an office, I wanted to get back out there again. So then I went to Argentina and I started doing some climbing expeditions there. And I You thought... were climbing with the climbers? Yes, yes. So yes. I was assisting and I just fell in love with Argentina and decided okay. to stay. Right.
0: <laughs> I want to talk about climbing because when I look, and there's, it's been in the paper this weekend, mm-hmm. Everest, it's been in the news, and the congestion on that mountain seems to be me to be utterly ridiculous um, but then you know I was thinking about it over the weekend and I wondered why I don't have that like for me when I look at the, the photos and some of the images that are coming out of Everest this week of all that traffic jam um, on the mountain it to me it looks totally like you know are you crazy people that the, the <laughs> likelihood I mean what is the likelihood
2: you're going to die very high mm-hmm. so why do people do it? Well, I climbed a lot in my twenties, and in your twenties, you pretty much feel you that you're invincible. So I think that had a big, big part in why I did it. But for me, I think also it's the challenge. It's it's setting yourself a goal and yeah. working towards it. I had to train for two years before I did my first expedition. So I, I do feel it's it's that discipline, and sometimes also just can I do it. Yeah. Can I do it? And I think that applies to a lot of a lot of so things. So why do you think hundreds of people are up on Everest? Inter- it isn't, yeah, it's an interesting thing. Climbing is very different to 20 years ago. It's, it's yeah. definitely a lot more commercial. And said to say that if you have the money these days, you can pretty much pay your way to get onto the mountain. And but you can't pay to stay alive. No, that's exactly right. And I think that's what people do forget. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I think... So, so some of these
0: people paid 50000 and died up there. I know. Four yeah. people.
2: Four, is it four yeah. or five that have died uh, yeah. this season? Yeah, I know. One man, you know, he's 50-odd, left his family behind. And, yeah, it's it's really, really sad. But I think that when you get to the point where you're going to climb a mountain like Mount Everest, you do get a lot of tunnel vision and nothing else really comes into focus it's it's all about the mountain and climbing that mountain and everything else falls away
0: and why that mountain yeah yeah
2: well i think everest is is i guess the holy grail of climbing for a lot of people it's it's really well known it's the highest mountain in in the world and it has a lot of history attached to it as well and there's also a bit of you know a bit of status you know mm. to you know add to the ego and say well i just climbed everest And why haven't you climbed Everest? Yeah, money, (laughs) money, right? (laughs) It's expensive. (laughs) It's really expensive. Yeah, Yeah. and you know, I mean, I've moved on from climbing. Mm. I did it in my twenties and thirties, but I'm you know nearly fifty and got a couple of kids and and a husband. So my priorities have changed, right? Doesn't mean I don't still think about it, but I don't think I, I would eh, do it. You know, I just n- don't have it, I guess, and yeah. so it's
0: hard to understand. Okay. Um, okay, so talk to me about the adventure of living in Argentina and in a different country.
2: Oh, yes. Well, it was. It was really interesting. I first went to Argentina to climb, and I wasn't really thinking about the country... Uh, you know, the culture or anything like that. It was more focused on the mountain, funnily enough. But when I arrived in, in Buenos Aires, I felt like I was returning home. It was a really odd feeling. I'd been to plenty of places around the world, never felt that before. And every time I left, I would cry and felt like I was leaving my home. So Argentina really became a big part of me, still is, uh, so much so that I actually... what took about a year after my first book came out, Luna Tango, that was set in Argentina. I realised, oh, it was my love letter to Argentina. Yeah, yeah. beautiful. Yeah. So is that when you started to write? Tell me when you started to write fiction I wrote, and when
0: the first idea came to write a book.
2: Yeah, I wrote fiction as a kid. I mm. uh, kept travel diaries. So I was always writing, never with a goal to writing a book. Uh, but... I was 33 and I was being interviewed by a radio journalist about my travels and he actually said to me why don't you write about you know about your travels I'm like, oh no I've never thought about it and then What there, was the interview about It was about my travel and my life as working as a mountain guide and right, a tour guide okay, right. Yeah so it was more like the Other Life. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Free books. Yeah. And he just kind of planted a seed there. Yeah. And then I saw a travel writing competition for one of the big travel magazines and I thought, oh, I'll just enter it. Yeah. And it got published and I saw my name in print and I was like, ooh, this is kind of nice. Mm. I like this. Mm. So then I enrolled myself in a creative writing course and really just haven't looked back since. Mm.
0: I like yeah. that because people come to writing in different ways mm. but more and more um, I'm hearing that you know um, people are entering competitions I think that that's a very good idea if you want to be a writer um, and um, and really starting to study the craft of writing
2: yeah oh yeah that that was just that course was just the beginning yeah. of, of all the study that I've done mm. but I think also writers do a lot of things like subconscious study as well, because writers are also readers. Yes. And so when we read a book that we really love, often we'll, we'll pause and we'll reread something or we'll, we'll look at it and go, wow, I really love how they've done this. Or, um, yeah, we really sort of take note. Yeah. And those things do stick. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I guess everything sticks
0: along the way in whatever mm, career. True. You, hopefully you're picking up and learning every day. Um, so tell me with your first book, what It wasn't non-fiction because that seed that was planted in your head was non-fiction, I guess. Yeah. Tell me about your travel story and why did you decide not to write non-fiction and to write fiction?
2: I think I initially did have the thought to write non-fiction and it was definitely centred around travel uh, and and climbing, but then there were so many other books out there by really well known people. So I thought, but they were mostly well known men, weren't they? Yeah, there were there were a few women. Um right. A few women that I, I got to do some climbing expeditions with as well. Like um, who? Um, so Bridget Muir. Right. okay. Yeah. I don't know those names. Yeah. yeah. She, she was um the first Australian woman to yep. climb Everest. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, yeah, she amazing. And Sophia, who right. was also an amazing mountaineer. Yeah. And so I just kind of felt like maybe, you know, maybe I might might turn to fiction. I, I love fiction. I've grown up on fiction and I enjoyed it when I was writing it as a kid. So the community... And you course, enjoy reading it. Oh, I love it. Yeah, of course. Always, yeah. always reading. and. So I don't know, the committee course just sort of happened to pop up at the right time, I think, and I had a really fantastic teacher and it just, yeah, snowballed from there. And once I got the taste of it, of writing fiction, I, I just knew that. That was where I wanted to head. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so
0: it was called Luna Tango, Mm. right? Um, uh, And it was a story based in Argentina? Yes. Yes. yes, So talk to
2: me about that. So I have an Australian character. Yeah. And uh, she travels to Argentina to look for her mother, who was a, she was Australian or is Australian as well, and she became a world-famous tango dancer and actually sacrificed her family in order to pursue her love of tango talking about that you know tunnel vision that people have and it's a dual timeline so it's set in 1950s so around the era of um, Eva Peron Mm -hmm. and also present day as well in, in Buenos Aires and the stories do overlap and it was the first time I had ever tried writing a dual timeline and I just loved it it felt really really natural to be able to weave the stories together yeah. It just seems so difficult for me, but yeah, I'm not a writer. I'm just a reader.
0: Um, and how did how did it come about? So when you were happy with it, I mean, how did it come about to be published? I mean, that's not easy either, is it?
2: No, it isn't. Um, I had actually written three other manuscripts beforehand and right. they will forever be under my bed gathering dust. Yes. <laughs> and I'm cool with that. I look at them as my apprenticeship novels. Yeah. I, I learned so much.
0: Well, do you know, I, I, I'm glad you brought that up because there's, so much practice in writing oh, as well yes. isn't there i yeah. mean you really we had josephine moon in recently for a podcast and i just loved her she, you know she told me she kept a well she does keep a spreadsheet and she had a thousand rejections
1: yeah before yep. You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Was it 1,000 or
0: 100? No, it might have been 100. Um, But either way, it's a lot. Mm. And she kept going. But the way that she looked at it was it really was just all practice. Yes,
2: yes. Yeah, I, I probably had about 200 rejections over the way. Wow. Yeah, and that's I just, a lot. It is a lot, and you know, some days were harder than others. Yes, I, but I actually rejoiced the first rejection I got. Yeah, because I felt like I was a writer then, that I had finished a book and I'd put it out there to for someone else in the book publishing industry to read, and they actually had some really nice words to say, which was was really lovely. Uh, but it just felt like I would just made a big step on on the road too to publishing so yeah it was actually a little even though you were rejected yeah I was cool with that I honestly didn't think I was going to get a yes on the very first go I don't yeah. know if anyone does but <laughs> it'd be pretty amazing if you did maybe if you're Trent Dalton yeah probably <laughs> <laughs> um, tell me so when did you get your yes I got my yes on my fourth manuscript which was Luna Tango yeah. So I was at a writing conference at the Romance Writers' Association and I met a lovely author. We'd known each other for a few years and she was asking what I was writing and I told her. And who her. was the author? Um, Kaz Delaney. Yeah, lovely. Yeah, she's gorgeous. Yeah. We love to talk about the authors. Here. Yes. So
0: feel yeah. <laughs> oh, free to name drop. <laughs> Excellent. Happy to do that.
2: <laughs> uh, and Kaz said, look, you know, I my, my agent loves... Dance, and I think she'd really like your story. So she put me in contact with her, and we chatted, and she she read some of and it. And who was and the agent? Jacinta Namasi. Oh my God, I'm yeah. seeing her at the end of the oh month. Are you? I am oh, indeed. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Feel free to name drop. We love agents too. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so she read it and enjoyed it. And then we went out on submissions. So she went and approached different publishers, and we were just getting different feedback from everywhere. And um, yes. and were you reworking it at the time? We, yeah, Depend- I reworked it before it went out. so yeah, yeah I probably did maybe. Six or eight different drafts mm-hmm. uh, before it was ready to go. Yeah, mm. and yeah, so then it went out to different publishers, and I uh, was lucky enough to get the call, yeah. <laughs> from Harlequin. And yeah, I've been working since. That feel ah, uh, just amazing. I remember getting the call and running around the house and screaming and laughing and my kids and i be like, what's going on? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Could barely talk. Because it's, it's something you dream about. You know, I, I'd been writing off and on for 10 years, different manuscripts. Yeah. And, you know, just putting it out there and then finally to get that yes. And that's one thing I always, I do a lot of workshops with people and... Talk to me about those. Yeah. Okay. So I... I love giving back to writers and I love helping them polish, you know, find the, find the gems in their work and, and learning the craft and just exploring different avenues. So I always say to them that you only need one yes and you never know when that yes is going to be. Mm-hmm. So if it's something you really want to do, like you just you keep going, keep, keep reading, keep meeting other people in the industry, getting to know lots of different people and keeping an ear out for what publishers might be looking for and you just never know when that yes is going to come. So mm. it'd be, it would be terrible if someone gave up and, you know, mm. that yes was just, just mm. around the corner. What do you think is harder, mountain climbing or writing a book? <laughs> You're asking me at the moment because I'm working on a book that's really doing my head in. So <laughs> now At the moment I'd say mountain climbing is easier. But, <laughs> um, I, yeah, look, they're both... Yeah, they're both very mental. Like with, mm. with mountain climbing, it's, so we always say, mountaineers always say, well, it's 80% mental and 20% physical. And I, it's probably that with writing as well. You use the brain a lot. Mm. Um, some days are easier than others, but you've just got to sit down at the desk every day and you just need to just push through it. So tell me what your riding day looks like. So I do the mum thing take the kids to school, drop them off and then I sit down at my desk. I'm lucky enough I've got an office at home Mm -hmm. and I sit down and I, I write. I don't read back over my work. I make a note of at the end of every day where I'm heading to next because I find if I go back and read, there's another half hour and then I'll be, you know, wanting to be fiddling with different things. I'd rather do a big edit after the story's done. So I'll work through till about 3. If I'm on deadline, then I'll do more work at night, you know, start about 8 o'clock, work till 11. Yeah. And if I'm really close to deadline, then I'll be working on the weekends as well. And I am so thankful for laptops because <laughs> often I can be found in the car, you know. One of the kids is off at netball training and I'm, you know, busy trying to get some words done. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, is it, do you have, a you lim- Do you give yourself a target, like a word can't target, or is it
2: okay? I used to to work on hours. I used to say, oh, you know, I'm going to work from nine till three, but I find if I actually have a word count, that works much better for me. So at the moment, my word count, I like to do 3,000 words a day and if I get that done by lunchtime, that's fantastic. Then I You can... give
0: yourself an early mark.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or if I'm on a roll, I'll keep going. Yeah. Um, but if I have a really slow day and I get 2,000 words done, then I will be back at the computer later on that night and get my 1,000 words right. done.
0: Yeah, it's a job, isn't it? It I mean, is. It, the discipline is tremendous.
2: Definitely a disappointment. So talk to me about the cinema at Starlight Creek. Oh, yes. Where did the idea come from? I actually don't know, but I feel like it has been brewing all my life. I am am like classic Hollywood movie tragic. I grew up on them. My family, every Saturday night when we were kids, we'd be watching all of the classics. And I was always reading biographies about the famous Hollywood stars. And it always fascinated me about what their life is like off screen as opposed to you know, what we see on screen so I've always been interested in that and I guess studied it in a way so when the time came to think of a new idea I think this this just came into my into my head And 1950s Hollywood just seemed to make sense to me because that was a really big time of upheaval and change. They, they had the censorship, Hays Code with the censorship. There was a lot of worry about communism and there was the Hollywood blacklist where... Which was terrible I, I know, yeah. yeah. So, people people were just... Careers ruined. Ruined, put on yeah. this list and they would never work again. People yeah. suicided. Yeah. Yeah, so it was a really interesting time for change and if you sort of study the history of film, the 1950s, the censorship was being changed a little bit and, and people were trying to, to really work against it and saying, you know, well, enough's enough. Like mm-hmm. if, if we want to have two on-screen kisses, we can do that. And so it was a time I thought that was a really good time to set for yeah. that story. And 1994, I just wanted to set something a little bit Pre-internet, Yeah. Um, and when I was writing it in the 1994 story, we were, you know, there's a couple of places where my location manager has, she's got use of a mobile phone for the very first time. And it brought me back to, you know, when when the Nokias first came out and they had that really I certain ringtone <laughs> yeah. and everybody knew it. They were a brick, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, they were a brick. And because it's set
2: in rural Queensland, we're like, oh, yeah, the coverage, we had to, you know, I sort of had to be careful where she was because sometimes there wasn't coverage. So it was interesting, you know, stepping back in time and actually looking at the history of mobile phones. You'd have to do a lot of research because you yeah. haven't, yeah. Talk yeah. to me about that. Oh, I love research. Yeah. I love research. Yeah, this particular book I probably spent about three months researching. Before you started writing. Yes, yeah, and I was actually really lucky because I got to go on set of a TV drama. Ah, and Yes. how I, did you do that? Uh, It was a really great connection. So one of the school mums, her uncle is... uh very, very well-known Australian uh, producer and he was working in Melbourne at the time and she said, oh, you know, if you want to go in onto one of the sets, I'm sure he'll have you. So luckily he said yes and it was wonderful. I got to spend time with the director and he took me under his wing and he explained so much. Wow, how valuable is that? It was wonderful. I was on a high for a week. Well, it makes the book (laughs) more authentic, doesn't it? It does. And because I already knew what my story was about. I could ask questions that were really relevant to my characters. And so, yeah, I spoke to the makeup people and the sound people and the actors. So I really felt that by the time I'd left I had a good understanding and a couple of them, you know, I kept in contact with so I could ask questions
0: if any popped up. Yeah. Yeah. And also the changes that we've seen in the industry. Yes. It's. I mean, Hollywood's been shaken to its core, isn't it?
2: It has, and some the way that women get treated. and, you know, I mean, that's all changing, isn't it? It is, and someone actually asked me the other day, and they said, "Oh, you know, did you write this because of the Me Too movement?" I thought, actually, I wrote it a year before, and then the Me Too came out. Like, obviously, there was something in the air. Maybe I picked up on it somehow, Mm -hmm. but yeah, it's it's interesting, you know, how that's that's all changing Mm -hmm. as well, because this story is about women you know, trying to find their way in an industry that's dominated by men and what they have to give up or what mm. what they are willing to give and up. And what
0: the audition processes have been like. I mean, terrible what we're hearing, isn't it? Yeah. 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 I, you know, I mean, it's been such a, um, a great movement in terms of, you know, um us understanding how some industries work. I mean, it's a privilege movement in a way as well because I don't think it has trickled down to Mm. women that will say work in factories or women that work on production lines, you know. Um, But either way, you know, we always need to have a starting point. But what has surprised me, you know, is that we have women, you know, like Meryl Streep, like Nicole Mm. Kidman, that really this is now, this movement has started to open doors for them to actually be producers and be producers Directors, yes, which wasn't available before. That's extraordinary, isn't it? It is, it's
2: wonderful. It's really, really fantastic to see what is happening and the groundswell now, yeah, and the great change. And it won't get swept under the carpet, no, which is great, yeah, yeah.
0: Oh, so it's called the Cinema at Starlight Creek. Ali Sinclair, thank you so much for speaking with us
2: today. Oh, thank you so much for having me, it's a pleasure.
1: (laughs) Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.